Uh, today, I want to convince you of a very important truth. In fact, actually, I want to I wanted to show you that there's something that you may believe to be true that's really false. And the false belief that I think has crept into so many of our lives, and, and without even knowing it, is that we should rely on technology to tell people about Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against technology. I'm not Amish. Okay. In fact, I'm a, I'm a techno geek. All right, I love all of my little devices. I'm very active on social media. I have my own website that I've built. So I'm very much in favor of technology. But what I'm saying is that it's not a substitute for telling people about Jesus. I'm not saying that there's anything immoral about posting something about your faith on Facebook or Twitter. There's nothing wrong with Christians in Hollywood producing quality movies about Jesus and about faith, nor is there anything amiss with sharing the gospel on TV or radio. It's not that technology is inherently evil. Technology does not necessarily corrupt the message of God's word. The problem is this. Technology is simply ineffective in doing this. And I, and I want to, let me put it another way. God has ordained not only the theology, but also the methodology that will inhabit his kingdom with people who believe in and love him. I'm going to say that again. It is my belief that God has ordained not only the theology, but the methodology that will inhabit his kingdom with people who love him and believe in him. You see, if God was waiting for Facebook in order to bring revival to the world, wouldn't it have happened already? Certainly. When Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, which is an incredible movie, I was deeply moved personally. When this movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out in theaters, I remember many evangelical leaders proclaiming that it would usher in a mighty wave of God's Spirit calling people to repentance and faith. I don't recall that spiritual awakening happening in our country. And the same could be said for God's not dead. I can only imagine God's Not Dead 2, The Case for Christ movie, God's Not Dead 3, or however many more God Isn't Dead movies come out. Great, fine movies. But that's not God's means by which he builds his family. If TV or radio was God's appointed methodology to inhabit his kingdom with people who believe in and love him, then I just honestly can't put my finger on why our country has turned its back on God. It's certainly not for a lack of TVs or a lack of radios. Perhaps putting the right theology into every type of technological innovation isn't the way God has chosen to change the world. 
Maybe God has shown us already in his word how to advance his kingdom. Maybe God has already told us in his word how to help people follow Jesus. Now we know the task. The task is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now in this verse that you see on the screen, you see the one key verb, the one only Uh, The only imperative verb in this entire verse, these two verses, it is make disciples. That is our job. The going, the baptizing, and the teaching is how we go about making disciples. It is our job to make disciples. So, how does this happen? What is the method that God has ordained as His method and the only effective method by which His kingdom is inhabited by people who believe in and love Him. It is, in a word, relationships. It's relationships. You see, God uses your relationships to bring people to Jesus. And by the way, just as an aside, I've heard uh, preachers and others say, usually on social media, um, well, if Jesus was on earth today, He would have a Facebook account and a Twitter account, and He would be active on it. No, he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't. And I can prove it. How many books of the Bible, or other books for that matter, did Jesus write with his own hand, using his own pen? Certainly the technology was available to him, right? He wrote none. Zero. Jesus did not personally use the most impactful piece of technology that could last the longest and spread his message the farthest. Why not? Because God uses people to change people. It's about people. It's not about technology. There's a place for technology, but it's always secondary. Jesus left it to the people that he impacted to use those forms to spread his message. So let me take you on a very brief, we're going to run through these quickly, a very brief journey in the New Testament of how people encountered Jesus. And you probably won't have time to turn to all these passages. There's a passage that we'll get to later that you can turn to. But just pay close attention. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, Jesus encounters a guy named Matthew. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he called a man... Or he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, whose house? Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Do you get it? Matthew met Jesus, and what did he do? He personally told the people in his life, who was that? Tax collectors and sinners. He said, you got to come to my house. I'm having a party. And there's someone i got to introduce you to. Matthew personally introduced his friends to Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 40 and 42. One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak about Jesus, and then they followed Jesus, one of those two was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. We, he brought him to Jesus. Do you get it? Andrew personally introduced Simon Peter to Jesus. Next couple of verses. John chapter 1, verse 43, and then we'll skip a verse, go to verse 45. The next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip, upon meeting Jesus, introduced Nathanael to Jesus. Do you see a pattern? John chapter 4, verses 28 through 30. So the woman, the woman at the well, she left her water spout and went back into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. The woman at the well personally told the men of the city about Jesus. Now, a few weeks ago, Jerry Joplin filled this pulpit. And he, uh, as he addressed this congregation... He told you about a Greek word by the name oikos. It's pronounced oikos. And it usually is translated house or household, but really it means a sphere of influence. And I want you to listen again as we go very quickly through the book of Acts about the importance of each person's house or each person's sphere of influence. When you read the word house, it's talking about this oikos, your sphere of influence. In helping people follow Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They are personally meeting house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was doing what? The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The good news of Jesus, in other words, was being spread from one house to another house, from one sphere of influence, from one person's world to another person's world. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Again, going from house to house, from one person's sphere of influence to another person's. Acts 11, four, uh, 14. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, not only you, but all of your household. The same word. Your entire sphere of influence will come to know the Lord. Acts 16, verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your oikos, your sphere of influence, your entire household. You see, you have a sphere of influence. And if you're willing, if you truly love your loved ones enough to follow God's strategy, then you can be instrumental in seeing them come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the strategy is the how-to. The how it is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. This is where I want you to turn. In Luke chapter 8, we'll look at verses 1 through 15. Now, we're short on time, and so if you listen quickly, I'll speak quickly. Okay? Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. But I want you to notice 
that, and we're not going to explain everything that's in this, in this story yet. We'll do that in the coming weeks. But in this story, in this parable, in fact, this is, by the way, the only parable that Jesus explained. And he said, if you don't understand this parable, how can you understand any of my parables? And so he took the time to explain this parable. And you've heard this before, most likely. But I want you to take note of something, that your lost loved ones, let's personalize it right now. Your lost loved ones, the people in your sphere of influence, people in your life, in your family, in your extended family, your friends, your household, your co-workers, your schoolmates, your grandkids, your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law, the people in your life who don't know the Lord They are the harvest that God wants to bring in. And you are the farmer. You're the one who has to do the work. Let's read this. Verses, uh, beginning actually in verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together. And those from the various cities were journeying to him. He spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil. And as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 9, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the kingdom, or excuse, know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, But to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in the time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit. With perseverance. Let me just briefly address a few principles of this harvest that God wants to bring in. Number one, God owns everything and everyone in the field. God owns everything and everyone in the field. They are His. The lost people that you love and you care about that you want to see go with you to heaven. 
They're gods. God created them. And so we must understand that everything in the field belongs to the Lord. Principle number two. We have work to do. I have never lived on a farm. I'm a city boy. Growing up, the smallest town that I ever lived in was Lubbock, Texas. Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth were where I spent most of my childhood. And so I don't know a lot about being a farmer. But I've heard that they work hard. I've heard that they're hard workers. Because a farmer who's not a hard worker is probably not a farmer for long. We've got work to do. We've got work to do. Third principle. Like a farmer, we must do three essential tasks with regard to our lost loved ones. We must plow the ground and plant the seed and then bring in the harvest. The next three weeks, we'll talk about those three activities. What it means to plow the ground and to plant the seed and to bring in God's harvest. And so we must understand and follow the process that leads to the harvest. And I want to encourage you not to lose heart. The harvest will come. If there is somebody in your family or a friend who does not know the Lord, and that is a tremendous burden to you because you love them so, do not lose heart. You pray. It begins with prayer. As much as you love them, I can assure you that God loves them more. And together, you and God may be able to reach them. But don't lose heart. Don't ever stop praying. I've met so many women whose husbands are away from the Lord. And they pray for their husbands. And inevitably, that time comes when they become discouraged. And they're tempted to stop praying. They're tempted to just say, well, I guess that's just the way it's going to be. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Who do you know that needs the Lord? Begin praying for them. And I would ask you to be so bold as to let others begin praying for them. You know, when Jesus talked about two or three coming together, and he, he, made, a, he made a promise that when two or three take something to the Lord, the Father will do it. He made a promise. Why is it so powerful when two or three join together? Because it means you swallow your pride. It means you are broken enough to the point where you let someone else know, I can't do this on my own. I need you to pray with me. When you get to the point where you can ask another mature Christian who loves the Lord, pray for me in this. 
Pray for my friend, for my husband, for my wife. Pray for my loved one that they might come back to the Lord. That they might know the Lord for the very first time because they've never met Jesus. When you get to that point, there's power in that prayer. Begin praying for the lost in your life. Let others join you in praying for them. Today, at 5 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall, we'll begin a study. Along these same lines, you're invited to come if you want one of the workbooks. It's only $5. But we're also going to spend some time praying for the lost in our lives, expecting God to do some great things. I invite you to email me at david at broadviewchurch.com or you can call me or text me and my number's up on the screen with a prayer request that you may have that if you'd ask me to join you in prayer about somebody in your life. God is going to do some really good things in your life if we follow his plans.